1: Financial markets, it's often said, are like roller coasters. Both go up. Both go down. And the sharp falls and rising volatility in stock markets over the last month have many riders wondering if they'll make it off in one piece. But the parallels extend beyond the shared appeal to adrenaline junkies. As knuckles go white and stomachs churn, the difference between a thrilling ride and a catastrophic crash is whether the structures holding everything up will hold firm. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird, and this week we're asking, what could the next financial crisis look like? Over the past decade, the infrastructure of financial markets has changed dramatically. Power, as well as risk, has been redistributed. New punters have flooded in and buoyed by pandemic stimulus, most have had an incredible ride. But as policymakers put the brakes on, financial markets are starting to wobble. The new system is about to face its first serious stress test. It has not been a happy new year for many equity investors. As central banks have hurried to tighten monetary policy in a bid to tame inflation, American stocks have suffered their worst January since 2008. The sell-off has been concentrated among some of the hottest sectors of the past two years, leaving a great many star performers nursing very heavy losses. The giddy, bulletproof optimism of 2021's seemingly endless rise has been punctured and the doom-mongers are having a field day. Cool heads are in high demand at times like these, so I'm lucky to be joined by Alice Fullwood, our US finance correspondent, who's been writing about this all this week. Alice, welcome.
2: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: How's the cover leader going? It's always a bit nerve-wracking.
2: Yeah, you know, almost as nervous as watching the markets, but uh, not quite. (laughs)
1: And John O'Sullivan, our markets columnist, otherwise known as Buttonwood, is here as well. Hello, John. How are you doing?
3: Very well. Thank you, Mike.
1: It's been an eventful first month of 2022. Alice, what is going on?
2: Yeah, I mean, mostly I have been watching the wild uh, month for stocks, a wild beginning to 2022, you know, at times... Both the S and P and the Nasdaq have been in correction territory, so down more than ten percent from their highs. We've had some pretty wild uh, intraday moves, and uh, interest rate markets have also been sort of similarly jumpy. You've seen big, big jumps up in in treasury yields and buns. So all of those things have been preoccupying me. Is there anything so far that's made
1: either of your jaws just drop?
2: Well, Facebook looking like a penny stock
3: was pretty remarkable. Dropping. A quarter of that yeah, you know, one of the sort of stars of the the technology firm and doing that in one single day was pretty astonishing. That's I think the standout moment for me.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's almost indicative of how much uncertainty Investors are feeling about what any of this stuff is worth. Also, huge moves in in Netflix, which is down fifty percent from its all time high. Um, and then there was that remarkable day where the S and P sold off by four percent and rallied into the close on basically no news. So, you know, the the mood feels a lot like people are really grappling with what stocks are worth now in a way that they they haven't really been for the past uh, eighteen months. How would we sort of
1: put this in context? How big of a shock is this? We've had a fairly long period interrupted pretty briefly, really, by the pandemic of of sort of steadily rising asset values, relatively low volatility for a lot of that period. It feels like that's been sort of punctured quite rudely. What does it remind you
3: guys of? It doesn't feel like much of a crisis at the moment. These are not really big moves down. I'm I'm sorry, I'm a very old person and I lived through the NASDAQ going down 75% in the early 2000s. So going down 10% is not the biggest deal in the world. I think there is something very big going on underneath all this, though. It's not fully reflected in certainly at the index level or even at the industry or stock level. It's that we've had a long, long period and you can go back. You can take it all the way back to the 1980s if you really want to, where interest rates have been steadily falling, falling, falling. And then we've had a decade or more where interest rates have been zero in some cases below. And as a consequence of that, every other asset in the world, stocks, you know, prime property in New York, in London and other Paris and other big cities have sort of been pushed up. And now for the first time in a long while, we have central banks saying we're going to raise interest rates and we're not going to hold you by the hand and tell you exactly by how much because we don't really know because we've been caught rather by surprise by the inflation of the past year. What's been a bit surprising, actually, is how little the impact has been at the index level. I mean, the S&P, because it's rallied in the last few days, is is down about 6% year to date. So given what seems to be a fairly important seismic change in, in capital markets from the sort of monetary policy point of view – It's been a little bit surprising that so far we haven't actually seen more tumult.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with what John has said there. Stocks are off a bit, but it doesn 't feel like a crisis yet and Given the context how different a phase we 're now entering, the phase where the dominant narrative for markets over the past fifteen years seems not to apply, it is interesting to go back and look at um, some comparisons with previous stock market crashes and crises. You know For my piece this week, I did go back and sort of read the things that we wrote around the dot com boom about how you know retail interest was very high and valuations had got very high then and monetary policy was tightening. And you can see that some of those themes seem to have, have reasserted themselves. So it is a really interesting time.
1: I, I'm, for our listeners, I, I work in Hong Kong. And to some extent, I feel like sometimes you can tell uh, where financial vulnerabilities are by how people treat relatively small downward moves in, in indexes. So sometimes you're talking about. A sort of 10% fall. And sometimes when you talk to American investors, uh, especially now, it's like the sky is falling because an index is down 10%, which might just be a sort of, you know, a a slightly shrugged off bad week in in China or, or Hong Kong. And obviously, there you've got a lot of retail involvement as well. So, when we think about the changes in the system since the financial crisis and, and even just during the pandemic, the prominence of retail investors, I think, in particular, the last couple of years has been a big story. It's just a year since the short squeeze on, on GameStop, which sent the stock's price up 1,500% in a couple of weeks. Um, Alice, have you been spending much time on the uh, Wall Street Bets subreddit recently? What's, what's the mood?
2: I mean, paying attention to Wall Street bets is now a part of my job description. So, uh, so yes, I've been hanging out in um, on Reddit a lot, and you know. A lot of the favorites of retail, like electric vehicle stocks, cryptocurrencies, some of the meme stocks like AMC, have really come down a lot uh, since their their peak. So it's a little gloomier in there now, more akin to sort of mourners that awake than a, than, than a giddy party. One of the veteran Redditors I spoke to who hangs out on Wall Street bets uh, goes by the name of Trufflecopter. And he told me uh, he's always had an interest in financial markets. Uh, he studied economics, but he really got into trading when COVID hit in 2020 and was part of that surge in retail activity in 2021.
4: I thought about what happened in 2008, 2009. And I know everybody who had the bravery to step up and buy stocks in the worst of 0809 09 uh, were rewarded quite famously. So I just I kind of figured out which companies are definitely going to survive the pandemic um and then I, I just kind of started piling into stocks there. And then I became more and more engaged in Reddit. I was involved in Wall Street bets way before it went uh it went fully viral with the whole GameStop thing. And uh it's just kind of been a roller coaster ever since, I guess, up and down. Well, I mean, early on when I was uh investing Everybody around me thought I was an idiot. And I was like, no, I'm telling you, Facebook and Amazon and these companies, they're not going anywhere. But uh, as the pandemic went on, stocks just kept going higher and higher and higher. And as more and more people, young people particularly, were making money and showing off about it on social media and stuff, more and more people started getting sucked in. And then, you know, even like people's parents started wanting to take a more active role in managing their investments. Whereas before, you know, they would just buy into mutual funds. But I really believe in the past six months or so, a lot of retail investors have really started taking some huge losses. And a large number of them, their responses basically just be like an ostrich where they just stick their head in the sand. And they're like, oh, I'm just going to be a long-term holder forever. And I've taken a different approach. I am very quick to cut my losses and keep on moving on. I think a lot of the new investors are exhausted. They are sad that they've lost money. And they don't want to accept that the market is still overvalued. So they think a bottom is coming. They're going to curl up and give up at some point here. I still recognize, I don't have a freaking clue compared to people who do this professionally. But I'm a bit more aware. And I think, I think people like us are cautious. And then I had so much success during the pandemic that like I feel like I've opened up the, uh, the secret door to you know the potential financial freedom at some point in my life. So I'm never going to quit investing even if even if i lose everything i have now like i i'm, I'm going to keep on learning and expanding and keep on going how important
1: are retail traders like trufflecopter to the system at large today
2: there are a couple ways of um of measuring the importance of retail investors uh, one is the share of trading that they're responsible for so about a decade ago uh, retail investors represented about 10% of equity trading volume. Uh, That's climbed to about 15% by 2019. And then it spiked up uh, to around a quarter through 2021 and almost a third at the very peak of the GME uh, GameStop frenzy in January. So they're responsible for a lot more of the trading than they ever were before. The other way of measuring it is by looking at the, the sort of amount that they hold. So households uh, if you go back 20 years, they held about 10% of their net worth directly in equities. Most of their of their holdings of equities were through things like pension funds or, or other intermediaries uh, that sort of managed their stock exposure on their behalf. Now, 27% of household net worth is directly invested in stocks. So individuals hold a lot more shares directly than they did before.
3: John, any thoughts there? Well, I'm actually wondering about comparisons to where you are in Asia, Mike. The increase in the fraction that um, Alice was just talking about is pretty remarkable, but I imagine the fractions are much larger in places like, particularly like China, where retail turnover is a very very large fraction of the market, and has been for a long time a very very noisy market where you get a lot of uh, coordinated trading via social media and all the rest of it. So, in in many respects, it's there's a there's a sort of Kind of deep irony here, which we're constantly looking for China to behave more like an America. But this is this is one aspect of of capital markets where America has actually started to behave more more like uh, more like China in this regard. The other thing to say, of course, is that it's one of the things you tick off on your bear market checklist if things are about to go south very very quickly, is an increase in retail participation. And you can even go back to 1929 and the, the, the story, which is supposedly uh, centred on, on, on Joe Kennedy, the father of uh, John F. Kennedy, who sold all his stocks after hearing the shoeshine boy give him stock tips. So it's, it's been for a long time, for you know, a century, been a signal of that the markets are getting frothy when you get a lot of retail involvement.
2: The uh, 2008 comparison is the uh, Las Vegas strippers buying four houses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we saw in 2021 how this retail frenzy could drive up valuations. How does that dynamic work in the event of a serious downturn? How much does it all become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Those narratives can be very important in driving investor sentiment. I had a long and quite crackly phone conversation with Robert Schiller, um, an economist who won a Nobel Prize in 2013 for his work on stock markets and bubbles, and who sort of looks at the psychology of, of investing in markets over extremely long time periods.
5: The market is often in a situation where price movements are not justified by fact. There's a sense of regret that we didn't get into the Bitcoin earlier. <laughs> <laughs> often there's this is fear of missing out FOMO they don't want to think that they were one of the laggards even if they know that it might be overpriced
2: he makes some attempts to quantify some of these uh, these feelings these sentiments in markets so he runs these sort of stock market confidence surveys and the first question uh, has always been do you think the market is overvalued
5: individual investors think the market is overpriced. They haven't thought so strongly since um, the uh, turn of the century,
2: the the millennium bubble burst. So about 75% of of investors think that the market is overvalued right now. And despite people thinking that the market is very overvalued, they're also extremely confident that it will bounce. So that sort of buy the dip mentality.
5: It reminds me of 1929. I don't mean to be alarmist, Uh, but uh, people thought the market was overpriced apparently, in 1929, before the crash. But it kept going up. And so uh, they, they kind of thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. I think we're in, in that situation too.
2: I mean, one never wants to hear the sort of seminal economist on stock market bubbles compare the present day to the 1920s. So I was alarmed, even though he was trying not to be alarmist when he said that.
5: There was an explosion of fun things to do. In the, in the 1920s with stocks and i think we're in a similar location they had what we call bucket shops where you could go and gamble on stock prices uh and they were fun places to visit until they were kind of uh shut down but i think there was a starkly changing narrative at that time uh that thought that the 1920s was an age of excess and we have finally had our comeuppance the situation is always different, but we have been at record levels for the market. And I think people are uncomfortable about it. But we have to see how the narratives play out.
2: What do you both make of Sheila's idea about narratives being the framework for how to think about the current moment? You know, fear of missing out on the way up can quickly just become fear on the way down.
3: I think that's, as ever with Robert Schiller, super interesting. But one of the things that we ought to consider ourselves is that we may have a narrative that says interest rates are going up, stocks should go down. And if they're not going down, they will go down soon. And I'm sort of haunted by a a second scenario, which is that actually what's going on tells us something about the resilience of the buy the dip mentality that Alice referred to and that things can actually through a rocky period in which the federal reserve starts to raise interest rates, you still get quite a lot of market volatility, but you end up with a situation where the market goes much higher than you think it could do. uh, And that this is the sort of um, a temporary sell off. And the big one is actually much further down the road. So in many ways, that's a much more worrying story because the hangover becomes much bigger further down the line. But it has to be something that we should consider as a possibility. That's really interesting.
1: And it reminds me of the sort of um, financial instability hypothesis. This is an American economist, Hyman Minsky. And to sort of really try and praise the theory, it's basically that during a very long market rally, the, the people who are successful are the people who take the most risk. And if you're a conservative investor, you are going to get left behind as a sort of almost joke who who is, you know, losing money against a benchmark every year. And uh, if you have clients, your clients are going to leave. And the people who look successful and prophetic and, and sort of market playing geniuses by the end of a rally are, are typically the people who took all the risk on the way up. That isn't necessarily a good idea, but it looks like it right at the end. I also remember when I when I first started covering financial markets markets. Somebody said to me, basically, don't bother trying to work out why things move because price drives the narrative, which is that that it's all made up um, <laughs> and that you'll see what happens in the markets and then you'll make up a story for it afterwards, which is obviously extremely uncompelling to a financial journalist.
2: I mean, if you look at past crises, there are always people on the way up who says now it's going to happen now. You know, this has already gone too far. It can't keep going. Yeah. And almost all of those people lose their shirts, and are eventually right. We don't want to be those charlatans predicting imminent doom, although, you know, eventual doom is probably inevitable.
1: That's a great way of putting it. Eventual doom is sort of guaranteed. (laughs) We don't know when it will come, but we know there will be doom. It will happen. Inevitably, the inevitable will
2: happen. Helpful advice from uh, Your Economist (laughs) journalists.
1: Economists love to look for parallels with past perilous financial crises, but a crisis now could look very different to what happened in 1929 or what happened in 2008. Banks have been reined in. What are the most important features of this new landscape for people to understand?
2: Yes. So as you highlight, we have a very different financial system than the one we had 15 years ago. And one of the most important shifts has been in who owns financial assets. So a lot of the financial assets that went bad in the last crisis were mortgages, which were held, at least in in large part, by banks because they were then imperiled. They sort of transmitted the panic and uh, chaos of their sort of balance sheets across the financial system and caused a very nasty and long-lasting downturn. What you've seen since then is a couple of forces that have pushed assets out of banks and into other financial institutions and indeed the hands of individuals. Um, Those two forces are regulation and technological change. So regulation has encouraged banks not to hold risky assets. And so in general, they've gone to uh, pension funds, hedge funds, insurance funds, and those kinds of investors. Instead, at the same time, you've seen the rise of new tech platforms and ways for individuals to have access to markets. So as I described earlier, you now have a lot more direct access and direct holdings of financial assets by individuals, whereas in the past, they're mostly intermediaries uh, in the way. So those two dynamics mean both that the banks are much safer, but also that there's a lot more risk held by disparate groups of people who rely on functional markets to manage those risks.
1: So it's not just the holdings of the assets themselves either. We've seen the sort of business of markets change quite a lot. We've seen the banks' functions from before the financial crisis transfer into different hands. John, are there any particularly interesting changes there that you've seen?
3: Uh, yeah, I suppose the, um, almost the canonical example of this is actually the, the Treasury market, which is you know the most important, it's the global risk-free asset that they're trading. So you want this to have continual and continuous liquidity. But banks and investment banks play a much reduced role in intermediating between buyers and sellers in that market, and they've been replaced by a sort of new breed of high-frequency traders, who give a lot of second-by-second second or millisecond-by-millisecond millisecond liquidity, but actually, and this is the complaint of asset managers, don't have the capital to take a particular view on the assets. So when markets start to get choppy, because those intermediaries don't have a lot of risk capital to put up against losses, they're not able to absorb lots of selling or lots of buying. So you end up getting quite big moves, as we did in in the spring of 2020, in even something as as liquid as, as, as treasuries. And maybe that's the sort of, you can build the argument from there, really, which is that in other less liquid assets, you might have an even bigger problem of Prices having to move a long way before there's a trade that sort of clears the market. So that, as Alice is writing about this week, the plumbing becomes part of the story. You get, in a sort of panic sell-off, prices can move lower than they would otherwise do if there are sort of functioning intermediaries. And then given the sort of narrative stuff that uh, Robert Schiller was talking about earlier, the emotion starts to react to the big price moves and it starts to feed on itself, So the absence of sort of good plumbing in the system can actually become part of the story. And then there's the third big change. You get beyond the the ownership, the the second the, who's
1: intermediating the assets, and you get to the third, which is uh, who's settling them. It's how the uh, the transactions are actually settled. Um, one of the problems that emerged from the last financial crisis was settlement being done bilaterally. So any given deal between two banks, they might have known about the content of that deal, but they didn't know about their counterparties' other arrangements with with other banks, and that meant that you had a very poor sort of horizon. You couldn't see what was happening. And it led to some of the sort of cascading issues that we saw during the last financial crisis, when one bank collapses and fatally weakens another. And one of the improvements that people have tried to make on that in the past 10 years is is the sort of advent of massive clearinghouses. Um, The idea being that if you have a single central counterparty or, or some very, very large central counterparties, then we know better where the risk is spread because they're all operating through the same system. So we have these institutions that have been set up that should make the financial system safer, but we don't yet really know how they're going to fare in whatever the next financial crisis is, do we?
2: Yeah, that is you know exactly correct. There have been situations in the past where these kinds of institutions have failed or come close to failing, and they were a lot less important then than they are now.
1: So we've talked a lot about retail investors, and to some extent, they're they're what's fun and new and sort of jazzy about the market at the moment. But institutional investors still matter enormously. They're the ones dealing with the sort of lion's share of the volumes. Um, How do institutional investors view risk in this new landscape, Alice?
2: I spoke to a handful of institutional investors across hedge funds and pension funds, both to get a sense of the potential turbulence that changing monetary policy and the changing sort of narrative of markets might yield for this year, but also how they think about risk in this new financial system. One of those people was Greg Jensen, who is the co-chief investment officer at Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the world's biggest hedge funds.
6: I think a lot of that has been healthy. Most of the entities that are not levered have removed the central point of banks. The banks had the problem being super levered and being the central point of concentrated risk. As you've distributed that risk across many different entities that are, to the extent they're not levered or that leverage is very careful, I think we are in a better spot. There are pockets where that's not true. There are definitely pockets of high leverage of new I- intermediaries that are providing leverage in ways that are, are more risky. Because there's been so much excess liquidity, people are choosing to buy assets that are illiquid at an extreme rate and probably undervaluing the value of liquidity. So I think you'll see some ripples along those lines. But for the most part, the things that have happened since the financial crisis have been quite good for stability in major financial markets. and you did see 2020 was a, a huge test that if you take how fast everything went down and the issues that arise, relative to what happened, the financial system came out pretty clean. And of course that's because the Fed supported it and, and other things, but nonetheless you had a major stress test of those entities and I think they did pass that. and that's largely because there's such a such a huge difference in leverage today versus leverage prior to the financial crisis in 2008.
2: What do you think is driving financial markets at present?
6: What you're seeing in an accelerating fashion is kind of the catch-up, where markets and particularly bubbly elements of the market ran up so much, so much faster than the, the nominal economy did. Now that demand is shifting back to the nominal economy, you're seeing it show up in inflation. You're seeing that inflation itself force policymakers to change course and start removing that liquidity. And you're seeing the areas of the markets that require the liquidity the most get hit the most. I think you'll see it spread. So I think right now what you've seen is actually relatively minor in that, yes, some of the air out of the most ridiculous things has has compressed, but that more generally, this is going to be ongoing and that you're, you're seeing the early indications of the earthquake in a sense from the fact that the Fed has just started to move in this direction and you're seeing the market to price it into a certain degree.
2: One of the things that uh, Robert Shiller said to me is that essentially there are always bubbles in all kinds of asset markets all of the time. But my sense of what is happening now is that any bubble that we are in could be quite big. How do you think about the likely sort of order of magnitude of any bubble and the potential for a correction this year.
6: Well, I think I think you're right. It's big, and the risk, like it's centrally caused, which has both a pro and a con to it. Like the, it, it's been done on purpose, more or less, in the sense that, that the Fed has provided that liquidity on purpose to deal with other problems that they've actually reasonably successfully dealt with, and in some ways, they control the dial for how, how bad this goes in the sense that they're providing the liquidity, they're withdrawing it at the rate that they're comfortable. And the problem is you're, you've come to this world where now policymakers from the Fed in particular are constrained. If they actually tried to hit their target inflation, I believe they will cause a bubble collapse. I believe that they'll actually choose to allow much more significant inflation than markets are currently expecting because the cost of collapsing the bubble too quickly will be seen as bigger then the inflation problem. But that'll be the balance. But the thing they don't, I don't think they have the option of is getting both things they want. They want inflation somewhere near their target and they want these bubbles to deflate gradually. And they're, I think, going to be forced into picking between the two.
2: How do you position yourself as Bridgewater for the environment that you have described? Is there a way to ready your portfolio for it?
6: Yeah, well, I think there's a few things. I think that at a high level, recognizing that you're in a different environment. That I think the markets are expecting us to go back to something like 2018, 2019, pre-COVID conditions with moderate inflation, the Fed raising interest rates, but very slowly, that type of environment. I think that's, that's risky. I don't think that's actually what's going to happen. So in terms of things that we think are, will help protect portfolios is A, recognize that all asset prices today are where they are because of where liquidity and interest rates are recognize the risk to the areas that have done the, the best from this liquidity outpacing the economy to shift towards assets where the economy outpacing liquidity. I think that's true within the U.S., that you could do shifts between sectors. out And a lot of that's outside of the U.S., that the inflation problem, not having enough capacity, is going to be resolved in emerging markets. It's going to be resolved in Europe and Japan. And so there's a lot of the world outside of the US that generally investors are under under diversified because the last decade, diversification kind of hurt everyone that actually just being in US equities and US equities alone was the best world. I think you'll see a shift in those things as well. And so being careful not to have one thematic bet, but to have a uh, portfolio of things that you think are skewed in your advantage that's how we would try to deal with that one of the toughest things to ever bet against is a bubble like they that they tend to go much longer than you think and it could be you could have another wave in that bubble for sure so you do want to be very careful like many many smart people have died trying to be short bubbles and that would certainly not be uh, the way I would approach it.
1: So Greg Jensen there mentioned something really interesting um and I wanted to come back to it and it's basically how do we think about what happened in 2020 do we genuinely think that was a significant stress test for the new financial landscape because it's almost at this point like it's not being counted as sort of a bear market was it too brief was it too specific it was all to do with the pandemic it wasn't really to do with financial vulnerabilities it wasn't really to do with anything that could be sort of identified as a business cycle at all. You know, a lot of policymakers effectively turned a number of countries off and on again. It's really not like any market shock we've seen before. Are we yet to see how the new financial infrastructure holds up under the pressure, or was that genuinely a good test of it?
3: I think it'd be strange to completely discount it. I mean, stocks fell by a third in about, in the blink of an eye, about five weeks. And the, the markets didn 't really one hundred percent pass the test either. I mean we were talked a little bit earlier about the what happened in the treasury market around about that time, where there was some really big jumps in in treasury prices, and uh, the market was not able to absorb all of the selling. but I do think it was a test. I think where people have questions about it is as you say, Mike, the shock was something that was exogenous to finance. And the response from governments was swift and overwhelming. But the circumstances in which we're talking about now are ones in which public debt levels are much higher as a consequence of the fiscal largesse and central banks don't have the same freedom to move. So you get some comfort from it, but I don't think it answers all our questions.
2: Yeah, and in particular, the crash in 2020 sort of revealed one of the ways in which the financial system has changed, because when assets turned bad, no one was worried about the banks. And so what you saw from the Fed in particular was rather than doing a sort of lender of last resort function for the banking system, they did a market maker of last resort function for financial markets. Now, as John highlights, they were able to be swift and overwhelming because it was an exogenous shock. If you got an endogenous shock that was, you know, to do with over leverage somewhere in the financial system or, or assets turning bad for some reason that was the financial system's fault, would they be able to provide that market maker of last resort function as easily
1: so, this sort of reminds me of something I was talking to uh, uh, an investor based here in East Asia about a few weeks ago. And we were talking about one of the major differences between anything that could happen now and uh, what happened in 2020 is obviously the role of the Federal Reserve. And their line was if the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates and it crashes East Asian markets, they're not going to extend us international swap lines like they did in March 2020. But there was a huge amount of international central bank cooperation that certainly isn't going to be coming if the fed is for some places in in the rest of the world the proximate cause of the difficulty that they're actually having in public markets so what do we think about this sort of dilemma facing central banks at the moment between choosing between uh, their inflation targets which certainly would suggest that uh, you know policy is is potentially significantly too loose at the moment and the risks of sort of hitting markets, of, of deflating a bubble and doing some damage here?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's actually worth looking outside America. The Bank of England raised interest rates earlier this month by a quarter point, and four of the nine strong Monetary Policy Committee voted for a half-point rise. And what was very clear was that they've got a hierarchical set of concerns, and inflation is overwhelmingly the first one. So we have to get inflation right and everything else has to kind of go hang. I'm slightly exaggerating, but that's where we are. It's similar uh, for the European Central Bank. It's not that they don't care about financial stability risks or they don't care about jobs or employment. It's just that in the hierarchy of the things they care about, inflation comes top. So for other central banks, it's fairly straightforward. And on your point about sort of emerging markets or particularly in Asia, we're emerging markets generally, are affected by Federal Reserve policy. But we should point out that in large parts of the emerging world, particularly Eastern Europe and Latin America, they've already raised interest rates by a hell of a lot. So they've got a buffer. I mean, certainly in Brazil, they've got a significant buffer against uh, future Fed increases. And it actually may turn out to be that emerging markets, having taken the pain earlier, maybe actually be in a, in, a, in a better position. It's worth pointing out also, I think, that Brazil is one of the best-performing Stock markets this year.
2: Yeah, I agree that the the Fed is in almost a uniquely difficult spot. I mean, stock markets in the UK and Europe haven't risen by anything near as much as they have in the US. I think you near know, the S P five hundred is something like seventy percent above its pre pandemic level. You're just not in that situation in Europe, but it still is a is a tricky year for for central bankers.
1: So, if this sort of moment isn't quite yet necessarily a, a massive step change for markets, how would we classify it? Is it a sort of test of nerves going on at the moment?
3: Yeah, I think it's one way of characterizing it. So, it's very hard. In fact, it's actually completely impossible to have high conviction views about the short term path of the stock market. So, let's be clear and honest about that. The reason we're talking about it is that something new and interesting is happening at the macroeconomic level. And one would imagine that ought to have a knock-on effect for for stock prices.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think that we're at a turning point. I don't know how sharp it is, whether we have gone, you know, spiked up and we're going to spike back down again, or whether we have spiked up and we're going to have an uncomfortable, wobbly year. And as we've reiterated many times, we don't want to be predicting uh, uh, imminent crashes like all those people who've lost their shirts. But it, it does seem like it's going to be quite a difficult year, both for markets and for those that watch them.
3: I think one thing we can, I can say with a low conviction view, which is that this marks the end of a kind of American exceptionalism, perhaps uh, echoing what Greg Jensen was saying earlier, earlier on, that we're moving out to a world where you'll be looking for value if you're looking for expected return. You need to look beyond the sort of gilded tech sector of the the US. You look to Europe, where there's much less tech in the index. There's much more cyclical and value. And markets like the UK, which have horribly lagged behind, partly because they're full of hated stuff like oil stocks and miners. But actually, that's the stuff that investors are loving now. When interest rates go up, you really want the cash now. Whereas a speculative tech stock may make you money ten years down the line. So you sort of think, ah, I'm not so keen about that. Should point out the FTSE 100, index I think is up this year, which tells you something about the sort of rotation away from tech towards, you know, stuff that benefits from inflation.
1: And that's a lovely way to think about it, isn't it? That this might all be at least a, a, a benefit for the sort of beaten down trash elements of the the stock market over the past decade. I think that's a, that's a nice sort of moral way of thinking about it. Well, thank you both very much, uh, John and Alice, for your time. Uh, pleasure, Mike. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, to to Greg Jensen, Robert Schiller, and, of course, to Trufflecopter. Thank you very much for listening to Money Talks. Remember, there's much more cool-headed analysis where this came from. Make sure you've subscribed to The Economist to read Alice's cover story in full. If you go to economist.com slash podcast offer to sign up, there's a deal in it for you. That link is in the notes for this episode. You can reach us directly at podcasts at economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan, Nika Raufast is the sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmule. I'm Mike Bird in Hong Kong, and this is The Economist.